Last week, we studied about the physiology of the muscle fiber, and we studied how the individual muscle fiber or muscle cell is a multinucleated cell, and it contains a lot of myofilaments inside, these proteins, actin and myosin. And they work in a way that allows a sliding over each other, and that is the physiology of the muscular contraction. But there are some uh, previous steps that have to be met, like there has to be a nerve connected to the muscle fiber, there has to be presence of calcium in the cytoplasm of the muscle fiber, and there has to be energy in terms of ATP. So let's start with the first of those uh, steps, which is the motor units. A motor unit is, by definition, the functional unit, the nerve muscle functional unit, because it is the nerve, a motor nerve, connecting to a muscle fiber. A motor nerve, we'll see that in the nervous system, there are different types of nerves. There are sensory nerves, there are motor nerves, a motor nerve is the one that brings order to the muscles to contract. So the nerve contains axons, which are the smallest fibers that will connect to um, the muscle fiber. These axons, they branch into many other small branches called terminals. And each of these terminals will connect with a single muscle fiber. And MJ stands for neuromuscular junction. That's how we call that precise place where the axon terminal connects to the sarcolemma, the membrane of the muscle fiber. As we see here, this diagram shows the spinal cord and the nerves coming out of the spinal cord. We have a motor neuron in the spinal cord that sends an axon, which is this nerve fiber. Uh, and we have two motor units here. Motor unit one in blue. We follow it from the spinal cord. It goes all the way, and you'll see the connections. This axon, this is called the axon, divides in two branches, and each branch is going to connect to one muscle fiber. That's what we see here. So a motor unit, is that group of structures that include a motor neuron connecting to one or more muscle fibers, depends if the axon branches off into many other branches. But it's one neuron innervating or connecting to one or more muscle fibers. The motor unit number two in red if you follow it, you see that it's connecting to one, two, and three muscle fibers. So that motor unit connects to three muscle fibers, and the motor unit one is connecting to two muscle fibers. But if you see it from the perspective of the muscle, each muscle fiber must have a connection coming from a neuron. You are gonna, uh, we're going to see that under the microscope today. There are some slides that we have, and you, have, you will have the chance to see that, like a dark filament going across the fibers and connecting to each individual muscle fiber in what we call the NMJ, or neuromuscular junction. So as we say here, the motor unit consists of the motor neuron and all muscle fibers that it supplies, which may be very small number, like here in parentheses we say from four to up to several hundred of fibers may be innervated by one motor neuron. And this uh, brings the concept of if, let's say, a muscle contains many, many thousands of muscle fibers, and all those muscle fibers are connected to a nerve, but let's say that this muscle 
it is innervated by only two motor units, or two neurons. And each neuron provides innervation to 500 of these muscle fibers. If you activate one motor unit, you activate half of the fibers, and therefore the muscle will contract partially. If you activate both motor units, you are activating the thousand muscle fibers of that muscle, and that contraction is more powerful and stronger. So, for instance, if I want to lift, grab a pen from the table, I'm going to use some muscle fibers. But if I try to lift this table, then I need a stronger contraction, and I'm going to use more motor units because I need more muscle fibers contracting. And that's how we regulate the contraction. We activate more or less motor units in order to achieve a stronger contraction or not too strong contraction. Now we say here, a single motor unit activation may cause only a weak contraction of entire muscle. So it depends on how many motor units I activate, I will contract that muscle stronger or not so strong. So that's the idea of motor unit. And another additional comment, every single muscle of our body will have different number of motor units associated. There are muscles that have few motor units, but there are muscles that have many motor units, meaning that, for instance, the muscles of our back there are very large muscles and strong muscles. They have less number of motor units than the muscles we have in our hand. We have more precision for moving. We need more precision to move our fingers, very fine movements. And we don't need that for the muscles of the back. The muscles of the back just make very rough movements, rotation of the whole trunk. There's not much precision or accuracy. But in the fingers, we can make very small movements, so we need more motor units. Conclusion, if I have more motor units, the movements will be more accurate, more precise. If I have less motor units, that's usually for very large muscles, like the muscles of the, of the back, the muscles of the trunk. Um, we'll mention that again when we get to those muscles. Then, the concept of muscle twitch. It's a single contraction, a sim simple contraction from a muscle fiber. So that is stimulus that comes to the muscle fiber and makes it contract, we said last time, is electricity. And we call that action potential. And it come, it's coming from a neuron, from a motor neuron. So if I stimulate one motor neuron to send an order in terms of action potential to a muscle fiber, the muscle fiber will contract quickly and then relax. This is recorded actually in studies, in physiology studies, and the recording is called a myogram. So what we see is a curve that shows contraction and relaxation of a muscle fiber. And we call that muscle twitch. But the muscle twitch can be seen sometimes with our naked eye when we see some muscle of our body and we see twitching. But this concept of muscle twitch refers to one muscle fiber and it's referred to studies uh, in the lab called myogram. And the graph shows like this. This curve is showing, and here on the y-axis we have the tension or strength of contraction and in the uh, axis X, we have the time measured in milliseconds. This arrow here is showing the single stimulus, which is um, the action potential coming from the motor neuron. So that works, the stimulus, at time zero. What happens? There is a brief period before the curve arises, and that period is called latent period. Then after some milliseconds, the curve starts to go up and it reaches maximum contraction. That is called the period of contraction. And what we see is that the muscle fiber is contracting. It's getting shorter. After that, the curve comes down and that's 
period of relaxation. All that happening in the terms of about 100, 120 milliseconds. So this is what we get when we perform these, these experiments, stimulating one muscle fiber, and we get this. Now the interpretation of these uh, periods, it's here. The three phases of muscle twitch. What happens during the latent period? During the latent period, if you remember last time we described all the steps of muscular contraction, the first thing that happens, the nerve sends the action potential, and in the sarcolemma, neurotransmitter stimulates receptors, another action potential is produced in the membrane of the muscle fiber, and then the electricity runs inside the T-tubule, sarcoplasmic reticulum, to release calcium. Calcium is released to the cytoplasm, binds the troponin, and then the muscle contraction happens. You see, all that sequence of events that I'm listing, that takes time. And that is happening during the latent period, which is a very brief period of time, it's milliseconds. But it's something that happens before we see any contraction. The contraction means, the period of contraction is when the cross bridges are forming. Like the head of the myosins with the actin are engaging and sliding over each other. And the relaxation is when the cross bridges are detached and the calcium goes back to the sarcoplasmic reticulum. That happens during the period of relaxation. We see the muscle fiber relaxing. Now, as you see, the muscle contracts faster than relaxes. The curve, the contraction is quick, the relaxation is slower. Then, uh, studying the muscle fiber contraction with a myogram, we can see different degrees of response, and we call that graded muscle responses, uh, where we change the frequency and strength of the stimulation. And actually, these are things that happen when we use the muscle. We study it in the lab, but this is just experiments of what really happens in our muscles when we contract them or use them for different uh, purposes. Here we see a single stimulus. A single stimulus is applied here and the muscle contracts and then relaxes. That is a typical muscle twitch. Single twitch, we call that a single twitch. It reaches a maximal level and then relaxes. But then in the second situation, what I'm doing is the stimuli I'm starting to apply many stimuli and look what happens. I apply the first stimulus here, the curve arises and then it starts relaxing, but before it reaches complete relaxation, I apply a second stimulus. And what's gonna happen? The curve will start arising and it will get even higher above the line for the first stimulus. And then the muscle contracts at a higher level, more tension, and it starts relaxing. But before it relaxes completely, I apply another stimulus. And what I achieve is that if I increase the frequency of a stimulation, the tension that is generated is higher. So, for instance, if I start contracting a muscle, and we can do this like just intentionally, voluntarily, until I get a very contracted muscle. What I'm doing is increasing the frequency of a stimulation so the muscle fiber will get a stronger contraction. That happens when we use the muscle sometimes for some purposes. And the nervous system is the one that sends more stimulus more frequently so we can achieve a stronger contraction. If I increase the frequency, look how frequent I'm stimulating the, the muscle fiber here. Very frequently. The first stimulus is here and the second stimulus quickly, right away and then and then. so. And I will increase, I will not see the, 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 the graded response like in many curves, but instead, I will get all this sustained contraction. 
This is actually the maximum contraction that a muscle fiber can achieve. And that's called tetanus. Fused or complete tetanus. Higher stimuli frequencies, there is no relaxation at all. That's what we call fused tetanus, a sustained contraction. This happens not so frequently, but we can simulate this when we perform what we usually call isometric contraction of the muscles and just increase the tension, increase the tension, and we can feel our muscles. This is what, uh, what the body, we see when the bodybuilders are in, in their competitions and they contract the muscles and they stay like that all the time. You can see all the muscles that are very contracted. They're almost in fused tetanus. Not exactly uh, tetanus, but it resembles the, um, how a muscle in tetanus would look. What happens when the muscle responds uh, to these situations, when we change the strength of the stimulus? There is recruitment. Recruitment is called multiple motor unit summation. And this is what I was saying. Recruitment is, I'm, since I need more strength in my contraction, I need a stronger contraction, I will not activate one or two motor units. I will activate 10 or 20 motor units. I recruit more motor units, meaning that I'm going to contract more muscle fibers in that muscle. And that's how this situation is seen in the muscle when we um, are getting stronger contractions. We recruit more motor units and therefore more muscle fibers. And we can divide this in different types of stimulus, like the threshold, the threshold is the stimulus is strong enough to cause the first contraction that we can see, the minimal. Subthreshold is not enough, so no contractions are seen. Maximal stimulus, the strongest stimulus that increases maximal contractile, contractile force. That means that all motor units have been recruited. That is maximal contraction of a muscle. So summarizing, stimulation from a nerve, from an axon, from a neuron is necessary and this frequency of a stimulus can change the strength of the contraction in individual muscle fibers. But if I want to contract the whole muscle that contains thousands of muscle fibers, I will have to recruit motor units, more motor units. So I will contract more muscle fibers in one muscle. And this is just uh, uh, how we see the recruitment, proportion of motor units that are stimulated. The ones that are darker are the mass motor units connected to those muscle fibers. Here, I just have four muscle fibers being in contraction and stimulated. Compare with this, where almost all muscle fibers are stimulated and recruitment is 100%, the contraction is stronger. And is, that is reflected here, maximum stimulus, you see the stimulus, the strength of the stimulus up here, and the maximum contraction is achieved when I recruit almost all the fibers and all motor units in one muscle. This happens, we see this when, when we see people with stroke. Stroke is a problem in the brain, uh, lack of blood supply. And what happens, in simple words, is that neurons in your brain will die. Neurons that send axons to different muscles of our body. But sometimes, not all neurons will die. Some neurons will die, so that means that, let's say in the muscles of the lower limb, there's still some muscle fibers receiving connection from neurons that are still alive. And so in stroke, sometimes we see complete paralysis, or we may see partial paralysis, weakness. That means that that muscle is still, still is moved by some neurons of the nervous system. And the physical therapy is based on this. If we exercise to stimulate those surviving neurons, stimulating those few number of muscle fibers that 
are still working, then the person will probably recover some movements. It's like training the remaining muscle fibers of one individual muscle. But that depends on how many neurons have been affected in a stroke. And all that following this concept of motor units. It's not one neuron, it's not two neurons, there are many neurons that are activating one muscle and it depends how many motor units they will have. Then the next uh, thing about the muscle is the muscle tone. The muscular tone is defined as that state of contraction that every muscle has. For different positions, like when we are standing or sitting, we keep our muscles contracted, like in a baseline. That state of contraction is called muscular tone. And it's mostly because of reflexes, spinal reflexes. Like, if you're standing, you have to rely on your reflexes if you try to lean to one side, you have to respond moving your muscles on the other side. Otherwise, you will fall. And all this tone is controlled by these reflexes at the level of the spinal cord. That's why they're called spinal reflexes. And you keep your muscles contracted, firm, and ready to work. A good muscular tone means that the muscle is active and is ready to respond at any time. Contraction of the muscle is described in two ways. And those are called isotonic and isometric contractions. The definition of isotonic contraction is when the muscle contracts, changes in length, and moves a load. For instance, any movement that we usually do, if I tell you, okay, lift up your chairs, and you're going to grab your chairs, and you're going to use your arms, your biceps, and you're going to make this movement. So you see your muscle contracting, and you at the same time are moving the load. That is an isotonic contraction. And they can be of two types, concentric and eccentric. What is the difference between these two? The difference is very well illustrated when we are working out at the gym, for instance, with some weights, and we, are, we begin from the extended position. Let's say we're working on the biceps here. The weight here, and I contract the biceps, I move the load in this way, and you see the muscle is getting bulky, it's bulging. That's why it's called concentric contraction. But then, the second movement, when working out the bison, what I have to do is move the weight back to the initial position, and I have to apply some force. It's not like I do this. I have to control my contraction and at the same time I'm contracting the muscle, I'm stretching the biceps. When you touch your muscle at that point, when you're making this movement of extension with the weight in your hand, and the muscle is contracting, the biceps is contracting, and at the same time it's stretching. That is called an eccentric contraction. That means the muscle is contracting and stretching at the same time. These two are isotonic. In both, you can see the muscle contracts, and it moves a load. It seems that like the it seems that the eccentric contractions are the ones that help more for growth of the muscles. So if you're trying to work out to increase the size of your muscles and you want to work your biceps, it's better if you do this, this and you do the eccentric very slow, and then the concentric, and the eccentric very slow. It seems that that movement of eccentric is the one that helps more for the muscle to grow. You have a question? Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, so uh, just on a pushing movement, a concentric movement is the upper phase of the right? It depends on what muscle. In that case, when you're doing this, yes, you are contracting. 
when you're doing this are stretched. Yeah. Yeah. For the case of the chest. Yeah. For the case of the butterfly, for instance, if you work in your pecs, this is concentric and this is contraction, uh, eccentric. And that's what some people misunderstood when they go and work out, they grab a weight and they start doing this. 50 repetitions, I'm the best. You're just burning energy. You're not making your muscle grow. But if you do 10 repetitions like this, and then slow eccentric, again, slow eccentric, and then slow eccentric, 10 repetitions. In three months, you see the buses like this. So these are the little things that are based on the physiology of the muscle that uh, is good to know in, in cases. Well, that's some personal trainers, a good personal trainer know about these things and how to contract the muscles in each exercise. And each muscle is different. That's why they have different types of contraction movements and uh, for that. So that's about isotonic contractions, which is illustrated here. You see the muscle contracting, getting bulky and moving the load. You see the load being lifted. Isometric contractions. When the load is greater than the maximum tension the muscle can generate. That means, if I tell you, come here and lift this table. You're not going to be able to do it because it's screwed to the floor. But you're going to make the effort start doing this. You're contracting your biceps. And you touch it and you contract it. The muscle is contracting, but you're not able to move the load. That contraction is isometric. <coughs> but if I tell you, um, go and lift this table right here, you could lift this table, but you have to make some effort before before you move the load. So that brings this concept. Every time we make our muscles work, usually what we do is both types of contractions. First we start with isometric and then the isotonic contraction comes. Because initially I will make the effort to contract my muscles. I, it seems that I cannot move the load, but I increase the force and then I move the load. So I start with isometric, then the isotonic contraction will, uh, will happen. Like you see the muscle contracting here, but the load is not being moved. But you can touch the muscle and you can feel the contraction. The muscle is getting contracted, but the muscle is not uh, getting shorter. The load is not moved. Okay, so next thing is about energy. As you know, ATP is a molecule for energy. Uh, ATP supplies the energy the muscle needs. And going back to the first part of this lecture, we've seen that ATPs are required so the cross bridges can be formed and then detached and continue working. Lots of ATPs are required for muscular contraction. Calcium is also necessary. And the calcium is moved by also action of ATPs in the sarcoplasmic reticulum. Sodium, potassium, and they are moved in both sides of the membrane by sodium-potassium pumps with use, which use ATPs. So in summary, lots of ATPs are needed for a muscular contraction, lots of energy. How the muscle uh, optimizes the use of ATPs? First, starting with the facts, the muscle has stores of ATP. That's storage of ATP in the cytoplasm. But ATP free and available to be used quickly. But that lasts for only four to six seconds, five seconds only. If you start contracting your muscle, the first five seconds, your muscle is using the ATPs that are stored in the cytoplasm of the muscle fiber. So after five seconds, what the muscle needs to do? It needs more ATP, so it needs to produce more ATP. And that happens by different mechanisms. First, creatine phosphate, or CP. Second, 
anaerobic pathway, glycolysis, and lactic acid formation, and third, by aerobic respiration. And all this happens in a sequence. So after you contract your muscle for five seconds, the muscle fiber starts producing ATPs by phosphorylation of the creatine phosphate. And that lasts also some seconds. And we still need more ATPs, meaning that you're still using your muscle, you will start to produce ATPs from anaerobic metabolism, glycolysis. And if you're still using your muscle for more than five, 10 minutes, then you need more ATPs. You need oxygen. You get ATPs by aerobic respiration. So it's a sequence. First, the muscle uses the ATPs that are stored, free, and then they start producing from creatine phosphate. Second, glycolysis, and third, by aerobic respiration. And in that way, the muscle can perform for a long time. When these guys that run races of 40 miles, 50 miles, all the muscles contract all the time. So they need to produce ATPs, and they are usually using or producing ATPs from aerobic pathway. So the first mechanism, direct phosphorylation of ADP by creatine phosphate. Creatine phosphate is a molecule located in the muscle fiber. And what it does is move a phosphate, move a phosphate to form ATP. Creatine phosphate, that phosphate is used to form ATPs. And the ATPs are used for energy. There's an enzyme called creatine kinase, which is the one that makes this transfer possible. And look how many seconds this lasts. 15 seconds. 15 seconds. So in the first 15 seconds, you are using, you are producing ATPs uh, with creatine phosphate. And here there's another misconception that some people have in their exercise, physiology of exercise and training. There are supplements of creatine commercially available. And there's a misconception that if you consume those supplements of creatine, you're going to make your muscles bigger or you're gonna increase the performance of your muscles. Well, not completely. Yeah, you will increase your performance, but only for 15 seconds. How good is that? What are we, what are we doing with, with the muscle that will increase our performance with the first 15 seconds? We use our muscles for different things. And it's not gonna make grow your muscles, uh, the creatine. The creatine is just providing more ATPs. So if you get supplements of creatine, what you're doing is, okay, I have full ATPs for 15 seconds, or 20 seconds, let's say. And then after what? Creatine, you're taking supplements of creatine, usually will not, will not have an effect, direct effect on the growth of the muscle. What makes the muscle growth is the exercise, is the routines, the techniques that you use for, uh, for this purpose. There is one situation where this works. Seeing these people that do weightlifting competitions, how long it takes for them to lift this big weight, 150 pounds, 200 pounds, from the floor to top of the shoulders? Five seconds, 10 seconds, or less. Well, in that case, yes, creatine will provide maximum performance. But only in that case. And actually, the studies about creatine phosphate were made only in those circumstances when you need a big effort in 15 seconds, maximum. If you try to race or run for 20 minutes, 30 minutes, and you're taking supplements of creatine, that doesn't work at all. It's not made for that. So just 15 seconds, the creatine phosphate. And this is the diagram that's showing the CP creatine phosphate donating a phosphate to ADP, and we have ATP. And this creatine will be phosphorylated again, and it remains inside the muscle fiber to provide ATPs for that small period of time. Okay, imagine that 15 seconds, you're exercising for 15 seconds, you keep exercising. Well, now you need more ATPs, and you're gonna get it from anaerobic pathway, glycolysis. 
and glycolysis, what we start doing is using glucose, start breaking down glucose. Glycolysis is that set of chemical reaction by which two ATPs are generated for each molecule of glucose that is broken down. But this step does not require oxygen. Does not require oxygen. So imagine that you are, let's say, exercising or doing some effort, muscle effort for more than 15 seconds. You're going to be started using ATPs that are produced by glycolysis. That is happening in your muscle fiber, glycolysis. Not oxygen required. But limited number of ATPs are provided, just two ATPs per glucose, and that's not too much, actually. Pyruvic acid is that intermediate that is produced by glycolysis, but if you keep exercising for longer, you need more ATPs, and the pyruvic acid will start entering to the mitochondria and switch to aerobic respiration. Because in aerobic respiration, we produce lots, lots of ATP with the presence, presence of oxygen. If oxygen is not available, then this step cannot happen. And what we have here is production of lactic acid as a result of anaerobic glycolysis. So if you're exercising for some minutes and at some point you feel the need to increase your respiration frequency, that means you're switching to aerobic <coughs> metabolism or aerobic pathway. If you don't need to increase your respiratory frequency, that probably anaerobic pathway was enough for that particular effort. But if you're not getting oxygen, you continue producing ATPs, limited number, but your muscle will get lots of lactic acid in their cytoplasm. And lactic acid can give those symptoms of fatigue, even cramps sometimes. Lactic acid is usually taken by the liver kidneys, heart, and in the liver is converted back to pyruvic acid. So the lactic acid, when it increases in levels because of anaerobic glycolysis, it may produce symptoms in the muscle, but normally our liver will get rid of that lactic acid and turn it back into pyruvic acid so it can be used again. And that's a diagram of anaerobic pathway. Glucose is used for this, with two ATPs per glucose being uh, produced. And the energy that is provided by this step lasts for the first minute, one or two minutes. Just that. Anaerobic pathway. And if you keep exercising for more than one or two minutes, this number is referential, actually. Everyone has a different threshold, but it's not too long. Maybe three, three minutes, one minute, five minutes, maybe, but not too much. You will have to switch to aerobic respiration. As I said, that moment at which you feel that you need to breathe more meaning, means that you need an oxygen to switch to aerobic pathway, and that's what your muscle is doing. ATPs are produced in huge amounts. 32 ATPs per molecule of glucose. That's the efficiency of this pathway, aerobic respiration. Now that happens in the mitochondria. This is what we study in the metabolism, part of the first chapters in physiology, anatomy and physiology. We talk about chemical reactions, metabolism, ATPs, production of ATPs. All that happens in the muscle fiber. Glucose, lots of glucose are needed. And if we run out of glucose, which is circulating in the blood normally, then we'll start using glycogen, glycogen, which is 
the storage form of glucose. Glycogen is a long sequence, long chain of glucose molecules. So the muscle fiber has glycogen stored, just in case we need more. If you start breaking down glucose and you need more glucose, well, muscle fiber has glycogen, and we start using that glycogen to provide glucose and we can produce more ATPs. But then, when the glycogen and the glucose are used and maximized in use, then we start using fatty acids, which give a huge amount of energy and, and, and ATPs also, fatty acids. And that happens after 30 minutes of exercise. Fatty acids are used after 30 minutes of exercise. That's why the recommendations, nutritional guidelines say, if you want to keep your weight or lose weight, you should exercise at least for 30 minutes, three times in a week, following this principle. If you are walking for 45 minutes, three times in, in a week, for sure you are burning fat. But if you exercise for 15, 20 minutes every day, you're not burning that much fat. You're actually using glucose and glycogen and not burning fat. If you start walking, now you don't have to run, you don't have to get exhausted. And just walk. Take a pleasant walk for one hour every day if you do it. Perfect. In three months, I guarantee you will lose weight and keep your weight. And that's another misconception that we have about exercise. Some people go um, sign up for going to the gym and work out and say, I'm going to lose weight and go exercise for 20 minutes every day. And they don't see a difference and they get disappointed and say, oh, it doesn't work. But you don't need to. You don't need to sign up for a gym. You just get out and walk. If your goal is to keep your weight and lose weight. If your goal is to get fit, make your muscles grow, or some particular purpose, well, yeah, that is perfect. But following the physiology of the muscle and the exercise, the energy is used in this way, in that particular sequence. So all that happens in the mitochondria. The glucose is broken down and the mitochondria making 32 ATPs per molecule. And how long this lasts? It may last for hours. It may last for hours. You can just run for hours, or walk for hours. Because as long as you have oxygen and as long as you have fat in your body, you can walk for five hours, six hours. You keep burning fat. You never run out of fat unless you are in starvation or just walking for 100 hours in a row, which is not possible. The muscle gets tired also. It's not only about the muscle and fat. You get tired. Joints, bones, ligaments. Questions to this point? Energy for contraction. During sports, what happens? Aerobic endurance. Now, if you use your muscle, if you contract your muscle using aerobic pathways, then you're training your muscle to optimize and maximize the aerobic pathway. And that's what we call endurance training. Little by little, you are, your muscles are prepared and ready to use aerobic pathway all the time or most of the time. And that's a switch that we see when we work out or start a routine of exercise. Initially, if you run from here to the bus stop down there, you will get so exhausted. If you're not exercising regularly, you get very exhausted. Arrive there and like, <sighs> But then you start doing some exercise for a couple of months and do the same thing. You will get, yeah, yeah, increase your frequency of respiration, but it'll be fine. You are getting endurance training. So your muscles are prepared to use an aerobic pathway instead of anaerobic, more aerobic. So then that way you increase your respiration, get to equilibrium and you, know, you still keep doing more exercise for hours. Anaerobic threshold is that point. 
at which the muscle metabolism converts to an aerobic pathway. So it switched back, back and forth, aerobic and aerobic upon the needs of, of the type of exercise you are, you are doing. And that's the whole sequence explaining the use of energy, ATP stored in the muscle for a few seconds, creatine phosphate for 10 seconds, glycogen stored in the muscles, anaerobic, short duration. If you finish the exercise here after a few minutes, you are mostly doing anaerobic exercise. Anaerobic exercise. But if you continue walking, running, or exercising for more than 30 minutes, one or more hours, then you are using aerobic pathway. And aerobic pathway, you use glucose, and then after 30 minutes, you start using fats. And that's a very effective exercise. Is it also called Krebs? Yeah, and uh, aerobic. Krebs cycle, working actively in the mitochondria. That happens usually at a baseline on all the cells, but when you exercise, you increase that cycle a lot. And it's providing lots of ATP for energy. That's another thing that some, some, there are some, some practices, there are just common practices, but it makes sense. Like people that have a competition next day, the previous day, they eat a lot of pasta, they say. What are they doing? Are they getting a lot of carbohydrates? And what's gonna happen? Well, they're gonna eat carbohydrates, they're gonna get glucose and form glycogen and store glycogen in the liver and in the muscles. So in the next hours when they start exercising, especially for anaerobic, they will start breaking down glucose from the blood and then glucose from the muscle and then glucose from the liver and that will provide more more time and more efficiency. And then, of course, they'll keep doing exercise. They will need fatty acids and, and, more, and more glucose. But that makes sense. It's a practice that makes sense. It's not exactly a, a formal recommendation, but the practice makes sense in terms of use or utilization of glucose as energy. Muscle fatigue, what is muscle fatigue? Is that an inability that the muscles get to continue contraction. It's that moment when we feel that we cannot do more and our muscles feel painful, sore, and we may have cramps. There is an imbalance of levels of potassium, calcium, and that will alter the process of excitation contraction. So when the nerves stimulate the muscle fiber and release of calcium, all that uh, will be altered. And if the exercise is prolonged, well, that interferes with this regulation of calcium. If the muscle is not well prepared, not trained, that will, be, that will happen uh, sooner. If you don't have ATP, well, that is not actually a reason for fatigue unless you have a very severe stress muscles and you're in a very, very exhausting type of exercise and you have problems for nutrition. In that case, you'll be fatigued for lack of ATP. That's not usually the case. We get fatigue or muscles fatigue because imbalances of electrolytes, um, calcium is not released efficiently from the sarcoplasmic reticulum and we may have these uh, symptoms. And something else, when the muscle finished working and before it goes back to the previous state, like pre-exercise, well, the muscle fiber is in a situation that is lacking everything and it needs to recover. Glycogen has been used and it needs to be replaced. ATP and creatine phosphate reserves must be recovered and produced again. The lactic acid has to be moved out and converted to pyruvic acid. Oxygen reserves have to be replenished. And that's the reason why after we finish exercise, there's something we call oxygen depth. 
In the practical terms, that's what we see. When you stop exercising, you still, with your respiratory frequency increased. So you finish exercising, you still, uh, <sighs> you still have to some minutes before your frequency goes back to normal. That's called oxygen depth. That means your muscle needs that oxygen. Even though they're not contracting anymore, but that oxygen is being used to recover all the glycogen, lactic acid being moved, more ATP created, more creatine phosphate, phosphorylated, and until the time when you completely go back to baseline and all the muscle fibers are ready to work again. Questions? Let's have a break. The muscle contraction in terms of the force and what are the factors that determine the muscle contraction? The force is determined by factors like how many muscle fibers are stimulated, that means recruitment. More motor units, greater the force. The relative size of the fibers. Of course, if we have a bulky muscle, that will contract with more tension. And with exercise, the muscle can increase in size. The muscle gets hypertrophic. The difference between hypertrophy and hyperplasia, which is a different term, hypertrophy means increase in size. Hyperplasia means increase in number. So what we see when with muscle grows is hypertrophy. The muscle fiber gets bigger. We don't see hyperplasia. Hyperplasia would be increase in number of muscle fibers, which doesn't happen. It's increasing the size of the muscle fiber, the individual muscle fiber. Frequency of stimulation. When we see the, 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 the curves of the muscular twitch. We increase the frequency of a stimulus, and that comes from the nerve. We generate more force. And this one is related to the muscle stretch, the degree of muscle stretch. That means how much they overlap, how much the filaments overlap. If um, the muscle fibers or the sarcomeres are like 100% the normal length, they will generate more force. If it's less than 80% resting length, there's too much overlapping and the force decreases. Or if they are too stretched, like 120% of the normal length, they, it's not enough overlapping for the force to be generated. And we can see that in this graph. Optimal position, resting length, that degree of overlapping is the, the one that maximizes the muscular contraction. But if we have the sarcomeres too short, like 75% of the length, the force generated is not too much, and we see that in this curve down. If they are too stretched, there's almost no overlapping of the five of the myofilaments, and there will be not enough muscular contraction, not enough muscular strength. This is important. This is important. Degree at which the muscles are stretched. If they are too close to one another, the muscle will not contract properly. If they are too stretched, the muscle will not generate much force. There is a resting length which is optimal, and that's when the muscle generates a maximal contraction. And that's in terms of the sarcomere length, the sarcomere length. Now, the contraction happens at a determined speed, how fast, how slow they contract. That depends actually on things like the load, which is important. It's heavier, the mask, the contraction will be slower. Recruitment, which means how many motor units I'm recruiting to uh, for a specific contraction. And this one, which we're going to talk about, the muscle type, the fiber type. We'll see there are different types of muscle fiber. 
First, they can be classified according to the speed of contraction. In that way, we have slow fibers and fast fibers. That speed, it relies on um, how quick the enzymes will work to process the ATP and the myosin head. And the second type of classification according to the metabolic pathway they use when they produce ATPs. In that sense, there are two types of fibers. Oxidative fibers, fibers that use more aerobic pathways, and glycolytic fibers, the ones that use more anaerobic pathway or anaerobic glycolysis. So they may be fast or slow or oxidative or glycolytic fibers. And depending on what type of fiber we have in some muscle, that muscle will contract faster or slower. So uh, if we combine these two criteria, we actually have three types of muscle fibers. Slow oxidative, fast oxidative, and fast glycolytic. Now the muscles are a mixture of fibers of the three types. And in that way, they can change how fast they contract, how soon they get fatigued, and uh, genetics determine how many oxidative, how many glycolytic we have in our muscles. There are people that are more fit for long duration exercise, like for running, long races. And there are people that are more fit for other type of exercise, like quick lifting weights and working out with machines. And that's because they have more of the other type, the fast glycolytic, more for anaerobic exercise. That depends on genetics, but it may change with training to a certain point, not completely, but in a certain point, we can change the, um, optimize the type of fibers that we have in our muscles. So as we see, slow oxidative are better uh, for, for instance, maintain posture. Fast oxidative for walking, sprinting, and fast glycolytic, like hitting a baseball. Intense, powerful movements, quick, powerful movements. We use more fast glycolytic. And as you understand, for hitting a baseball, you use many muscles. And it depends on type of fiber on those muscles is how well we can perform that movement and have better performance. And that can be trained. And people train in sports, different types of sports, uh, maybe quick movements, aerobic, anaerobic or long duration exercises like aerobic. And this is a table that shows many differences of the three types of fibers. Let's see some of them, like, for instance, regarding the, regarding the glycogen stores, the slow oxidative, they have low stores of glycogen. Fast oxidative, intermediate amount. But the fast glycolytic, they have high content of glycogen because they need to use glucose in glycolysis and anaerobic pathways. And we actually see this, we can see this under the microscope sometimes with special stainings, and we see them like fibers that look red, more red than others, some others look pale. If it looks red, means that they have more mitochondria, they have more blood vessels. More mitochondria means more aerobic pathway, more oxygen that they use. They are uh, oxidative uh, fibers. The load, the muscle contract fastest when there's no load added. That's very simple to remember. Greater the load, shorter the duration of the contraction. Greater the load, slower the contraction. And that relies on recruitment. More units that are recruited for uh, determined contraction. And as I was saying, this can be changed with training. That's called adaptation to exercise. 
aerobic or endurance exercise like jogging, biking, long-term leads to increase on the number of mitochondria, increased number of blood vessels, so more oxygen can get to those fibers, and myoglobin. What is myoglobin? Myoglobin is a molecule that binds oxygen. So myoglobin keeps a good amount of oxygen in the muscle fiber available to be used quickly. So that can be changed with aerobic exercise, with endurance exercise. And we'll see that the fast glycolytic, they turn into fast oxidative. That is a switch, that is a change that may happen with this type of training. Instead, resist, instead of resistance exercise or anaerobic training relies on basically isometric exercises, weightlifting with isotonic eccentric usually. And that leads to muscle hypertrophy. That's when we see the muscle grow. The number of fibers does not increase. The size of individual muscle fibers is the one that increases. And at the same time, there is more mitochondria, more myofilaments, glycogen stores, and connective tissue. And that results in increased size and therefore increased strength because there's more myofilaments. We've been talking about skeletal muscle. All this is related to skeletal muscle. What about the smooth muscle? The smooth muscle has a different type of contraction, a different mechanism, although the same proteins are found, but they are arranged in a different way. And the contraction is different, the type of contraction. We find smooth muscle in the walls of hollow organs, like uh, small intestine, large intestine, digestive tube, respiratory airways, urinary, air, uh, uh, urinary pathways. And they look like spindle shape, they do not have estriations, they are not arranged with the tissue sheets that we review like the endomysium, perimysium, epimysium. Only endomysium can be seen, which is a connective tissue between those individual muscle fibers. And they are usually arranged in layers like longitudinal layer along the axis of the organ and circular layer around like to cause the organs to constrict for instance in the junction of the stomach and the small intestine there's a circular arrangement of the fibers forming a sphincter and that is an example of this smooth muscle arrangement or in the longitudinal layer along the small intestine a long tube it will help for moving the food forward. Peristalsis is the contraction of smooth muscle. And it's seen as alternating contraction of relaxation. It's like a wave of contractions that travels along the tube. And that helps to move the food forward in the digestive tube. This is the aspect that we usually see in the smooth muscle, the spindle-shaped cells. And the example is small intestine in this case, digestive tube. How the smooth muscle is activated? Well, we don't see neuromuscular junction like we see in the skeletal muscle. Instead, there are nerves, but from other system called autonomic nervous system autonomic nerve fibers. They get and connect individual muscle fibers in a different patterns with the end of the uh, nerve fiber is like a small bulb of dilation called varicosities. And those are the ones that connect to the membrane and cause the stimulation of the muscle fiber. So it's different. There's no neuromuscular junction. It's autonomic nerve fibers connecting to the skeletal or to the smooth muscle as we see here. We see one nerve innervating many smooth muscle fibers with dilations called varicosities.
And that's where the neurotransmitters are released and the action potential goes to the smooth muscle cell. And you don't see estriations, there is no line going across. There is no sarcomeres, like in the skeletal muscle. We don't see myofibers, no T-tubules, there is no estriation. Although there is sarcoplasmic reticulum, that is different. There is still calcium inside, but the mechanism of contraction follows a different pathway. It's a little different. But still the calcium works for the contraction, but it works in a different way. These filaments, actin and myosin, are arranged diagonally. And when the muscle fiber, the smooth muscle contracts, we see this type of contraction. Here you see, if you notice, the fibers are arranged like in diagonal way, crossing each other. And when they contract, they make this move like, like a worm. If you see a worm, you see the typical pattern of contraction of a smooth muscle. And how it goes, it's stretching and elongating. And, in a different direction. That's, and the speed of contraction also looks in that way. Very slow contraction. It's not like the skeletal muscle uh, where the contraction is very, very fast and quick. And these are just some features to compare. Notice the pictures. This is, this is what we're going to see in the slides today, the skeletal muscle fiber where you see the striations, I-bands, A-bands, dark and light. Nuclei, you will see nuclei, many nuclei, meaning that that muscle cell is multinucleated. It's a fusion of many, many uh, individual cells. And those are the layers of connective tissue that are present in the skeletal muscle, muscle and smooth and cardiac muscle. We see only endomysium because the Muscle fibers are not arranged in bundles. It is completely different. And some other differences like neuromuscular junction in the skeletal muscle with the varicosities that connect many muscle fibers here. And contraction in the skeletal muscle is voluntary and smooth muscle is completely involuntary. All right, questions?